Friends, pray with me. God and Father, as we prepare now to explore this text and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I pray that you would be with all of us as we sit under its authority, even though we are sinful. Pray with you would be with me as I seek to preach it, even though I am sinful. Lord, I just pray that you would be near to all of us. In Jesus Christ, amen. Friends, it is Easter. It is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's common in Easter sermons to focus on what happened on Easter morning, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But you focus on the events of the resurrection story themselves, the fact that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Maybe you give some historical arguments about how uh, about how even beyond what scripture says, it's very hard to actually explain those events without Jesus's resurrection. And you have all these eyewitnesses that went to their deaths attesting to it, even though it cost them everything up to their lives. And that's a good sermon, talking about what happened on Easter. But what I want to focus on instead this morning is sort of the why. Why did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if there's a danger of just focusing on what happened, it's that it can actually diminish the significance of the resurrection. It just becomes sort of this proof that Jesus was really God and really died for our sins. That Jesus said a bunch of stuff and then he said, and I'll show you that you need to believe me because I'm going to rise from the dead. Which again, it is a proof of those things, but it's so much more. The story of the Bible begins with life. God creates this world and everything is very good and beautiful. And he creates human beings in this world and gives them authority over this world. And in that world, life is the ruling principle. Life, not just in the sense of having a pulse, but life in its fullness, that we have purpose and significance in our lives, that we live on the earth, that we have relational intimacy and closeness with other human beings, and that we ultimately have communion with God, who is the source of all true life. Because of our rebellion, because of the fact that we turned against heaven and refused God's right reign and instead said that we're going to define good and evil in our turns, what happens then in the Bible story is that death enters in. Again, death not just in the sense of us not having a pulse, but death in a full-orbed way. That we experience relational death. Suddenly there is hatred and envy that poisons our relationships. That we experience creational death. The world itself is broken, and things like this disease, things like the, the suffering and hardship of life on earth attest to that. And ultimately, there is spiritual death. We lose our communion and closeness with God, and that's really the source of all the other death, because God, who is the source of life, is now our enemy instead of our friend. Ever since the time of Adam, death has ruled in the world. Life is still here too. God has graciously preserved it. You can see it all over in the corners of creation. When you walk outside on a beautiful spring day, like we had a couple of this last week, when you hold a baby in your arms, you get these glimpses of the very good world that Jesus intended it to be. But at the same time, relational death and creational death and spiritual death are the governing principles of our world. You can't escape them. And in a time like this, with this coronavirus thing keeping us all at home and costing people their lives and being painful, wounding experiences for so many others, I think that's especially clear. What I want us to understand this morning is that 
there is a straight line in scripture from that beginning of the story with God's good creation of life and then the reign of death. There's a straight line from that through the resurrection of Jesus and to what we read about in our text in Revelation 21, a straight line. The Apostle Paul frames the story of scripture like this. He talks about this idea that death has reigned since Adam, but then he says that in Jesus, we are now being invited to reign in life. In Romans 5, he says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying death was the governing principle of our world until Jesus. But because of Jesus, and especially because of Jesus' resurrection, it's like this atomic explosion of life has suddenly gone off in the middle of the death. And, and instead of destruction, what's left behind is this, this, this divine life that is starting to leak into the world. That principle of life has come because of the resurrection, and it is moving forward toward eternal life. In verse 21, we read that um, just as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the hope of the future, that, that eternal life will ultimately reign through Jesus. And eternal life in Scripture, just like life in general, it doesn't just mean having a pulse forever. Eternal life, a better way to maybe talk about it is the life of eternity. It is that life that rests with God flowing into the world and into our lives in a way that heals all that is broken and wrong. What I want us to do this morning is to talk about that eternal life and talk about how it flows out of the resurrection of Jesus. And in particular, notice three things about that life of eternity as we see it brought to its completion here in Revelation 21. We're going to see new creation, the church's glorification, and divine communion. So let's look together at those three themes. First, new creation. We see the image of new creation in verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. A new heaven and a new earth. What does that mean? I think some people have this idea that it's new in the sense that it's like, another planet or another dimension or some other place that we're going to. I actually remember as a kid singing this weird Sunday school song about blasting off into outer space with Jesus. That is not what scripture means when it talks about the new heavens and new earth. Instead, it means new in the sense of renewed. You can see that in all the other places in the Bible that use this imagery. For example, in Isaiah 65 and 66, the new heavens and new earth are pictured as this restored land and this restored Jerusalem with life the way it should be. In 2 Peter 3, when it talks about this process of judgment that leads to this new heavens and new earth, the, the image that he uses is of Noah's flood, which of course is this great washing of water that sweeps away the effects of sin, but it's still this world, it's just this world renewed. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about how the world is longing for that renewal. He says this, he says, the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even in Revelation here, we get a hint of that theme of restored creation in verse six. God says, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That spring of the water of life is anticipating an image we're going to see in Revelation 22 of this river of life with the tree of life growing beside it. And all of it is loaded up with this imagery of the Garden of Eden restored. Maybe the easiest way to think about new creation is to think about the resurrection. Jesus, when he was raised, it was his physical body that was raised from the dead. The disciples could still feel the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, and he would eat food with them. It was his physical body, but at the same time, it was in some ways changed. At times, they had trouble recognizing him, and his body was immortal and imperishable. And when we rise from the dead, it will be our physical bodies. The Apostle Paul talks about how our bodies are planted like seeds and then they will blossom forth like plants in the new creation. There's this continuity, but at the same time, our bodies will also be imperishable and filled with the Holy Spirit in this way that means they're transformed. And the hope of new creation is essentially saying that in a sense, the whole world is going to experience that same kind of resurrection that the universe is going to be raised from its death to the sort of new life, and that is what we're anticipating in the world to come. That's the first piece of what's happening in this eternal life, and I want you to recognize that is a result of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits, and because of his resurrection, we will be raised, our bodies will be raised, and because of his resurrection, the whole universe will be raised from its death to life. The second theme we see here is the church's glorification. The church is revealed in glory. And you might have missed this, but look at verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So as the world is made new, John sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. What is the new Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem itself in the book of Revelation is an image for the people of God. God's people are pictured that way throughout history, including both Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. We are the people of God, and Revelation uses the image of Jerusalem to talk about that. And that's made especially clear in this passage because the new Jerusalem is described as a bride. In Revelation 19, just a few weeks ago, we saw this image of the wedding supper of the Lamb, where the bride has made herself ready. And we saw that that bride of Christ, that's the church. That's us. And so the bride of Christ, Jerusalem, the people of God, the church, are pictured as descending from heaven, being unveiled on the earth, being glorified. And that is the event that somehow is connected with and almost even causes the new creation. So let me explain what's happening there. Creation is broken, but in scripture, ultimately, it is humanity that broke it. We were given authority over it, and in our sin, we wrecked the world. And in Jesus, God is creating a new humanity, a new humanity in the midst of the old with a new community and that once again experiences relationship with God and is living by his standards of right and wrong. And that new humanity is being created with the ultimate purpose of restoring the world. In Romans 8, which we already read from, what Paul said, if you didn't notice it, he says, The creation waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God, which is us. 
What creation is longing for is for the church in her glory to be revealed. God is not just saving individuals and taking them up to heaven. He is saving a new community of people, and that is what the church in this age is meant to be. We're supposed to live together and love and care for each other and work in the world and worship God in a way that reflects God's original design in, in creation before sin entered the picture. And we do that imperfectly. Every church does that imperfectly in this age, and some churches do it much more imperfectly than others. But, but if you're in a church that does that even just a little, you get these glimpses of that hope, of what it looks like to have a community where people can trust each other and live in restored relationship with each other and, and have these transformed kinds of lives. And the hope is that those glimpses that we get when Jesus returns and the life of eternity finally breaks into rain, that those glimpses become the whole thing and the church is unveiled as what she is meant to be. And again, that is another direct result of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus comes to give us new life, new life in this age, and a new life that will find its fullest expression in the age to come. So that's two hopes, and then one more, divine communion. We are restored in right relationship with God. We see that in verse 3. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then in verse 7, we get the same promise. It says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In Eden, the image we have of divine communion is God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden face to face. Humanity lives in this face-to-face direct relationship to God, and that is essential to Eden being good. The Garden of Eden wasn't just a cool place where we got to hang out without any clothes and eat fruit whenever we wanted to. What made it good was that God himself was directly present there. That was why it was so full of life. And the reason death enters the picture is because that communion with God is broken. The hope of the resurrection is ultimately that our communion with God will be restored. I can think of no better picture of why that's so beautiful than verse 4 of our text. It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So there's a hope of comfort there. Death is defeated. There will be no more grief and no more pain. And those (laughs) Those are good things, but notice that the personal promise there, it's not just that bad stuff isn't going to happen in new creation, it's that God himself will be present to comfort us, that he will dry our tears. I think we sometimes talk about our hope of the world to come in a way that leaves God out of the picture. We talk about heaven, we talk about the afterlife in this way that emphasizes that like, well, you won't get sick there, and you won't be in pain anymore, and you'll get to see loved ones that you've lost. And that is all good stuff. But the center of our hope of eternal life is that we get to see God. We get to be with God. And that is actually the only way that eternal life can be a good thing. I was thinking about this television show that I enjoyed. It ended recently. It's called The Good Place. It's sort of this exploration by people who aren't Christians of the afterlife. But what struck me 
in the final episode of The Good Place, a, a friend was pointing this out to me, and I, th- I think he's really right. What struck me about it was that they actually essentially have to reintroduce death, even into the good place, the the happy afterlife, because they have this sense that if you really just had life that went on forever and it was a life that was like life in this world, that eventually it's going to get meaningless. And so you need something like death. And without God, I think that's actually true. Nothing in creation is infinitely good. And so we would exhaust any given created thing given enough time. Eventually, we would be done with everything that we could want to do in the world. We would just be bored by it. But God is infinite. You can explore him forever, learn more about him forever, and still find that you've only begun on the journey um, to plumb the depths of his goodness and greatness. And what makes the age to come good, what makes it something we should long for, is that we get to spend eternity in communion with, learning about, and relating to in the presence of God. That should challenge the way we talk about the afterlife, I think, and that should also challenge the way some of us experience Christianity in the present. We can remove God from the way, from the center of talking about the afterlife. We can also remove God from the center of our faith in general. We can make Christianity primarily about doing this list of things or getting this list of blessings and benefits and lose sight of the fact that it is communion with God that is meant to be the core of it. And if that happens, if we are not much in love with God and experiencing his presence in this age, then we are going to have some hard adjustments in the age to come because he is the central hope of this thing. And he will be at the center of all creation in a way that pours out in life and hope and joy to us, world without end. All right, that is our hope. Jesus Christ and his resurrection began the invasion of life into the kingdom of death. And that invasion is continuing in the present as Jesus calls and makes us a new humanity. But that invasion will reach its completion when Jesus returns and the dead are raised and the world is made new and God comes to dwell with us. That is our hope. What does that mean for us right now? As we celebrate Easter here in the middle of quarantine, longing to be together with all the stuff going on in our world. To answer that question, let me go on just a brief journey. Uh, Start here, okay? Each one of us on some level has the story that we tell about our lives. Each one of us has this narrative in our heads that kind of organizes and shapes what we tell about our lives. And some people... Just, just think about two people. One person has this very optimistic story about their life that they see themselves as succeeding. And another person has this very pessimistic story about their lives and they see themselves as failing. In each of those people's lives, there is success and failure. Everyone succeeds sometimes and fails other times. But the thing is that based on which story those people are telling, I think we all recognize that their experience of life and even the outcomes of their lives will be different. They'll experience it different. First of all, like, like when a failure comes to somebody who's got that story of hopeful success, then they're just like, well, it's just a temporary setback and I'm sure I'm going to triumph in the end. Well, for that person that lives in the story of failure, even when they're succeeding, they're not really able to embrace it. They're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. It shapes their experience and it even shapes their outcomes because oftentimes that person with that story of failure, what they end up doing is sabotaging their own success, whereas that person with a story of success will seek to pursue it and take risks and all of those things. 
So those two stories. But here's the issue. We recognize that. And what the world tries to do is to just say that, well, the solution to that is that you just need to tell yourself the story of success. That's what all the self-help gurus try to tell you, that you just need to be positive and believe it so that you can achieve it and all of those things. But there's a problem with that. And that is that even though it might work for a time, that ultimately that story of success, if you're trying to tell it to yourself, it is fragile. It is unbelievably fragile. Sometimes life crashes in in a way that that story of success cannot just explain away. Sometimes you lose your job and you don't get another one for a long time. Sometimes someone that you care about and love gets sick or dies. Sometimes you're stuck at home in a quarantine and your bank account is slowly running out and the future is uncertain. And it is hard to just, you know, positive think your way out of that situation. Or sometimes, even when you're having success and you're living in that story of success, you hit a ceiling. There are a lot of people at 30 who believe that they can do anything they set their mind to, but many of them, by the time they're 50, find that their careers have stalled and they've bumped up against what seems to be the ceiling of their abilities and they've got a mortgage hanging over their heads and they feel trapped and the story gets harder and harder to tell. Or even if none of those things happen, If you're telling yourself the story of success, it is fragile because it depends on you to tell it. And there will be times in life when that is just hard to do. If you've ever wrestled with depression or discouragement, you know that there are days where you're just too tired to pep yourself up and convince yourself that actually everything is going to be better and the sun is going to come out tomorrow. So we need a story that gives us hope because that shapes our experience in those good ways and because that actually helps us in life to grow and flourish, we need a story that gives us hope. But it doesn't work to just tell ourselves a story of our success. What Christianity offers is a story of hope, a story of healing and ultimate triumph that we can place our lives within and that we are invited into because of the cross and that we are defined by that story because of the resurrection and that we have the hope that we know the ending of that story because Jesus Christ will return. So we're given that story in Christianity, but the good news is that story is not fragile because it does not rest on our ability to convince ourselves that it's true. It is as solid as history and as steadfast as God. Here's what I mean. I don't know how you felt this morning when you woke up. It's Easter morning, maybe you woke up and the birds were singing in your heart, or maybe you felt like it was just raining and grim. I don't know whether you believe all of this deep down in your heart or whether you're wrestling with doubts. I don't know whether you are feeling hope or feeling despair, but the good news of Easter is that no matter what you are feeling at this moment, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. No matter whether you feel it or not, no matter whether you believe it or not, completely independently of you, Christ is risen and Christ will come again. One Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God and man, who had disappeared behind the gates of the grave, he kicked those gates open and sat up and breathed again and walked out of that tomb and life started breaking in. And that happened and nothing in the present can change the fact that that happened. And because of that, we know that in the future, it is certain because of that resurrection that Jesus will return. 
And we will be raised and creation will be made new and the church will shine forth in glory and God will come to dwell with human beings and we will bask in his glorious presence and nothing in the present can change any of that either. You don't have to to kind of buck yourself up and convince yourself that despite the fact that life is hard now, you're going to make it in the end. The hope is that Jesus Christ is risen and that means that we can inhabit that story We can walk through life knowing that our past and future is secure, live in the story of the resurrection, and have it then define our lives, including right now, including the place that we live right now. This is absolutely a time when I feel the power of death. In terms of this disease sweeping through our world, death is just a reality. But because of the resurrection, death does not have the final word. It isn't the thing that defines our stories. Even now with COVID-19, even in the darkest moments of history, Jesus Christ was risen. And what that means is that right now, our calling is to live. It is to live. If you're like me, I think the temptation in this season is to just hunker down and wait to endure it until it passes. But the resurrection happened, and that is just as true right now as it was any other time. The life of Christ has broken into the world and is breaking into the world and will heal the world. And that means that we need to be thinking right now about how we can live that life, how we can be that new humanity. And that is the invitation that I want to leave you with this Sunday. How can you, this week, live in the present in a way that reflects that certain hope of the resurrection? What does it look like for you today to show forth that hope in a place that you live, even under quarantine, even with social distancing and all this disease? If you're looking for specific ideas to answer that question, in the description of this video, we've come up with a list of a few suggestions. I think there's 10 of them. Go ahead and look at that or come up with something that fits you better. But our calling is right now, even right now, to live because of this truth that Jesus Christ has risen. That's what we celebrate this this morning, the unshakable hope of the resurrection. And that's what we anticipate, that that resurrection will ultimately find its fulfillment when Christ returns. Let's live the life of that resurrection hope today. Friends, would you now join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer? Father, This is the day we celebrate resurrection. By your power, you brought Jesus Christ out of the grave. You breathed new life into him. By your spirit, you're pouring that same life even now into our world and into our hearts. By the resurrection of Jesus, we will be raised with him on the last day, imperishable and washed from the crookedness of sin. We rejoice in this hope. Father, we thank you for the grace you showed us in Jesus' work. Our hope is not that we will stir ourselves up to joy. Our hope is not that we engineer new life for ourselves. Our hope is that in dying, Jesus Christ destroyed our death and that in rising, he restores our life. You gave this to us, even though we are unworthy sinners. And for this gift of grace, we give you thanks. All of this, and we are mindful of the death that still surrounds us. This world is still groaning under the effects of sin. We are still groaning under our sin and our death. We are especially mindful of that this Sunday, as we are unable to gather physically, 
because of this disease sweeping our world. Father, we pray that you would be with us in the midst of this crisis. Be with those who are sick. Be near those who are dying. Be close to those who grieve. Be present for those uncertain about the future, facing financial hardship or loneliness. Be a guide to those who lead us. And be present with us yourself, mighty to save. Might we even now experience the sweetness of your communion through the Holy Spirit and the new life and hope we have in Jesus. We pray all of this knowing that you are a living God who hears our prayers. We pray all of this knowing that Jesus Christ lives and intercedes for us. And we pray all of this knowing that he will return one day. And now, friends, join me as we are led in the Lord's Prayer. 